Volume the First, Chapter Seven of Caleb Williams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Darvinia. Caleb Williams by William Godwin. Volume the First, Chapter Seven. Mr. Tyrrell consulted his old confidant respecting the plan he should pursue who, sympathising as he did in the brutality and insolence of his friend, had no idea that an insignificant girl, without either wealth or beauty, ought to be allowed for a moment to stand in the way of the gratifications of a man of Mr. Tyrrell's importance. The first idea of her now unrelenting kinsman was to thrust her from his doors, and leave her to seek her bread as she could but he was conscious that this proceeding would involve him in considerable obloquy, and he at length fixed upon a scheme which, at the same time that he believed it would sufficiently shelter his reputation, would much more certainly secure her mortification and punishment. For this purpose he fixed upon a young man of twenty, the son of one Grimes, who occupied a small farm, the property of his confidant. This fellow he resolved to impose as a husband on Miss Melville, who, he shrewdly suspected, guided by the tender sentiments she had unfortunately conceived for Mr. Falkland, would listen with reluctance to any matrimonial proposal. Grimes he selected as being, in all respects, the diametrical reverse of Mr. Falkland. He was not precisely a lad of vicious propensities, but in an inconceivable degree boorish and uncouth. His complexion was scarcely human. His features were coarse, and strangely discordant and disjointed from each other. His lips were thick, and the tone of his voice broad and unmodulated. His legs were of equal size from one end to the other, and his feet misshapen and clumsy. He had nothing spiteful or malicious in his disposition, but he was a total stranger to tenderness." he could not feel for those refinements in others, of which he had no experience in himself. He was an expert boxer, his inclination led him to such amusements as were most boisterous, and he delighted in a sort of manual sarcasm which he could not conceive to be very injurious, as it left no traces behind it. His general manners were noisy and obstreperous, inattentive to others, and obstinate and unyielding not from any cruelty and ruggedness of temper, but from an incapacity to conceive those finer feelings that make so large a part of the history of persons who are cast in a gentler mould. Such was the uncouth and half-civilized animal which the industrious malice of Mr. Tyrrell fixed upon as most happily adapted to his purpose. Emily had hitherto been in an unusual degree exempted from the oppression of despotism. Her happy insignificance had served her as a protection. No one thought it worth his while to fetter her with those numerous petty restrictions with which the daughters of opulence are commonly tormented. She had the wildness, as well as the delicate frame, of the bird that warbles unmolested in its native groves. When, therefore, she heard from her kinsman the proposal of Mr. Grimes for a husband, she was for a moment silent with astonishment at so unexpected a suggestion. But as soon as she recovered her speech, she replied, "'No, sir, I do not want a husband.' "'You do? 
are not you always hankering after the men? It is high time you should be settled. Mr. Grimes, no, indeed. When I do have a husband, it shall not be such a man as Mr. Grimes, neither. Be silent! How dare you give yourself such unaccountable liberties? Lord, I wonder what I should do with him. You might as well give me your great rough water-dog, and bid me make him a silk cushion to lie in my dressing-room. Besides, Sir Grimes is a common labouring man, and I am sure I have always heard my aunt say that ours is a very great family. It is a lie, our family. Have you the impudence to think yourself one of our family? Why, sir, was not your grandpapa my grandpapa? How, then, can we be of a different family? From the strongest reason in the world. You are the daughter of a rascally Scotchman who spent every shilling of my Aunt Lucy's fortune and left you a beggar. You have got a hundred pounds, and Grimes's father promises to give him as much. How dare you look down upon your equals? Indeed, sir, I am not proud. But, indeed and indeed, I can never love Mr. Grimes. I am very happy as I am. Why should I be married? Silence your prating. Grimes will be here this afternoon. Look that you behave well to him. If you do not, he will remember and repay when you least like it. Nay, I am sure, sir, you are not in earnest. Not in earnest? Damn me, but we will see that. I can tell what you would be at. You had rather be Mr. Falkland's miss than the wife of a plain, downright yeoman. But I shall take care of you. Ay, this comes of indulgence. You must be taken down, miss. You must be taught the difference between high-flown notions and realities. Mayhap you may take it a little in dudgeon or so. But never mind that. Pride always wants a little smarting. If you should be brought to shame, it is I that shall bear the blame of it. The tone in which Mr. Tyrrell spoke was so different from anything to which Miss Melville had been accustomed, that she felt herself wholly unable to determine what construction to put upon it. Sometimes she thought he had really formed a plan for imposing upon her a condition that she could not bear so much as to think of. But presently she rejected this idea as an unworthy imputation upon her kinsman, and concluded that it was only his way and that all he meant was to try her. To be resolved, however, she determined to consult her constant adviser, Mrs. Jakeman, and accordingly repeated to her what had passed. Mrs. Jakeman saw the whole in a very different light from that in which Emily had conceived it, and trembled for the future peace of her beloved ward. "'Lord bless me, my dear mamma," cried Emily, this was the appellation she delighted to bestow upon the good housekeeper. You cannot think so. But I do not care. I will never marry Grimes, happen what will. But how will you help yourself? My master will oblige you. Nay, now you think you are talking to a child indeed. It is I am to have the man, not Mr. Tyrrell. Do you think I will let anybody else choose a husband for me? I am not such a fool as that, neither. Ah, Emily, you little know the disadvantages of your situation. Your cousin is a violent man, and perhaps will turn you out of doors if you oppose him. 
"'Oh, mamma, it is very wicked of you to say so. "'I am sure Mr. Tyrrell is a very good man, "'though he be a little cross now and then. "'He knows very well that I am right to have a will of my own "'in such a thing as this, "'and nobody is punished for doing what is right. "'Nobody ought, my dear child, "'but there are very wicked and tyrannical men in the world. "'Well, well, I will never believe my cousin is one of these.' "'I hope he is not.' "'And if he were, what then? "'To be sure I should be very sorry to make him angry.' "'What then? "'Why, then my poor Emily would be a beggar. "'Do you think I could bear to see that?' "'No, no, Mr. Tyrrell has just told me that I have a hundred pounds. "'But if I had no fortune, "'is not that the case with a thousand other folks? "'Why should I grieve for what they bear and are merry?' Do not make yourself uneasy, Mamma. I am determined that I will do anything rather than marry Grimes. That is what I will. Mrs. Jakeman could not bear the uneasy state of suspense in which this conversation left her mind, and went immediately to the squire to have her doubts resolved. The manner in which she proposed the question sufficiently indicated the judgment she had formed of the match. "'That is true,' said Mr. Tyrrell. I wanted to speak to you about this affair. The girl has got unaccountable notions in her head that will be the ruin of her. You perhaps can tell where she had them. But be that as it will, it is high time something should be done. The shortest way is the best, and to keep things well while they are well. In short, I am determined she shall marry this lad. You do not know any harm of him, do you? You have a good deal of influence with her and I desire, do you see, that you will employ it to lead her to her good? You had best. I can tell you. She is a pert vixen. By and by she would be a whore, and at last no better than a common trull, and rot upon a dunghill if I were not at all these pains to save her from destruction. I would make her an honest farmer's wife, and my pretty miss cannot bear the thought of it." In the afternoon Grimes came, according to appointment, and was left alone with the young lady. "'Well, miss,' said he, "'it seems the squire has a mind to make us man and wife. For my part I cannot say I should have thought of it. But, being as how the squire has broke the ice, if so be as you like of the match, why, I am your man. Speak the word, a nod is as good as a wink to a blind horse.' Emily was already sufficiently mortified at the unexpected proposal of Mr. Tyrrell. She was confounded at the novelty of the situation, and still more at the uncultivated rudeness of her lover, which even exceeded her expectation. This confusion was interpreted by Grimes into diffidence. "'Come, come, never be cast down. Put a good face upon it. What, though?' My first sweetheart was Bet Butterfield, but what of that? What must be must be, grief will never fill the belly. She was a fine strapping wench, that is the truth of it. Five foot ten inches and as stout as a trooper. Oh, she would do a power of work. Up early and down late, milked ten cows with her own hands. On with her cardinal, rode to market between her panniers. Far weather and foul, hail, blow or snow. It would have done your heart good to have seen her frost-bitten cheeks, as red as a beefin' from her own orchard. 
Ah, she was a maid of metal, would romp with the harvestmen, slap one upon the back, wrestle with another, and had a rogue's trick and a joke for all round. Poor girl, she broke her neck downstairs at a christening. To be sure, I shall never meet with her fellow. But never you mind that. I do not doubt that I shall find more in you upon further acquaintance. As coy and bashful as you seem, I dare say you are rogue enough at bottom. When I have tuzzled and rumpled you a little, we shall see. I am no chicken, miss, whatever you may think. I know what is what, and can see as far into a millstone as another. Ay, ay, you will come too. The fish will snap at the bait, never doubt it. Yes, yes, we shall rub on mainwell together. Emily, by this time, had in some degree mustered up her spirits, and began, though with hesitation, to thank Mr. Grimes for his good opinion, but to confess that she could never be brought to favour his addresses. She therefore entreated him to desist from all further application. This remonstrance on her part would have become more intelligible had it not been for his boisterous manners and extravagant cheerfulness, which indisposed him to silence, and made him suppose that at half a word he had sufficient intimation of another's meaning. Mr. Tyrrell, in the meantime, was too impatient not to interrupt the scene, before they could have time to proceed far in explanation, and he was studious in the sequel to prevent the young folks from being too intimately acquainted with each other's inclinations. Grimes, of consequence, attributed the reluctance of Miss Melville to maiden coyness, and the skittish shyness of an unbroken filly. Indeed, had it been otherwise, it is not probable that it would have made any effectual impression upon him, as he was always accustomed to consider women as made for the recreation of the men, and to exclaim against the weakness of people who taught them to imagine they were to judge for themselves. As the suit proceeded, and Miss Melville saw more of her new admirer, her antipathy increased. But though her character was unspoiled by those false wants, which frequently make people of family miserable while they have everything that nature requires within their reach, yet she had been little used to opposition, and was terrified at the growing sternness of her kinsman. Sometimes she thought of flying from a house which was now become her dungeon, but the habits of her youth and her ignorance of the world made her shrink from this project, when she contemplated it more nearly. Mrs. Jakeman indeed could not think with patience of young Grimes as a husband for her darling Emily, but her prudence determined her to resist with all her might the idea on the part of the young lady of proceeding to extremities. She could not believe that Mr. Tyrrell would persist in such an unaccountable persecution, and she exhorted Miss Melville to forget for a moment the unaffected independence of her character, and pathetically to deprecate her cousin's obstinacy. She had great confidence in the ingenuous eloquence of her ward. Mrs. Jakeman did not know what was passing in the breast of the tyrant. Miss Melville complied with the suggestion of her mamma. One morning, immediately after breakfast, she went to her harpsichord, and played one after another several of those airs that were most the favourites of Mr. Tyrrell. Mrs. Jakeman had retired. The servants were gone to their respective employments. Mr. Tyrrell would have gone also. His mind was untuned, and he did not take the pleasure he had been accustomed to take 
in the musical performances of Emily. But her finger was now more tasteful than common. Her mind was probably wrought up to a firmer and bolder tone, by the recollection of the cause she was going to plead, at the same time that it was exempt from those incapacitating tremors which would have been felt by one that dared not look poverty in the face. Mr. Tyrrell was unable to leave the apartment. Sometimes he traversed it with impatient steps. Then he hung over the poor innocent whose powers were exerted to please him. At length he threw himself in a chair opposite, with his eyes turned towards Emily. It was easy to trace the progress of his emotions. The furrows into which his countenance was contracted were gradually relaxed. His features were brightened into a smile. The kindness with which he had upon former occasions contemplated Emily seemed to revive in his heart. Emily watched her opportunity. As soon as she had finished one of the pieces she rose and went to Mr. Tyrrell. "'Now have not I done it nicely? And after this will not you give me a reward?' "'A reward? Aye, come here and I will give you a kiss.' "'No, that's not it. And yet you have not kissed me this many a day. Formerly you said you loved me and called me your Emily. I am sure you did not love me better than I loved you. You have not forgot all the kindness you once had for me?' added she anxiously. Forgot? No, no, how can you ask such a question? You shall be my dear Emily still. Ah, those were happy times, she replied a little mournfully. Do you know, cousin, I wish I could wake and find that the last month, only about a month, was a dream? What do you mean by that? said Mr. Tyrrell with an altered voice. Have a care! Do not put me out of humour. Do not come with your romantic notions now. No, no, I have no romantic notions in my head. I speak of something upon which the happiness of my life depends. I see what you would be at. Be silent. You know it is to no purpose to plague me with your stubbornness. You will not let me be in good humour with you for a moment. What my mind is determined upon about Grimes, all the world shall not move me to give up. Dear, dear cousin, why but consider now? Grimes is a rough, rustic lout like Orson in the story-book. He wants a wife like himself. He would be as uneasy and as much at a loss with me as I with him. Why should we both of us be forced to do what neither of us is inclined to? I cannot think what could ever have put it into your head. But now, for goodness sake, give it up. Marriage is a serious thing. You should not think of joining two people for a whim, who are neither of them fit for one another in any respect in the world. We should feel mortified and disappointed all our lives. Month would go after month, and year after year, and I could never hope to be my own but by the death of a person I ought to love. I am sure, sir, you cannot mean me all this harm. What have I done that I should deserve to have you for an enemy? I am not your enemy. I tell you that it is necessary to put you out of harm's way. But if I were your enemy, I could not be a worse torment to you than you are to me. Are you not continually singing the praises of Falkland? 
are not you in love with Falkland? That man is a legion of devils to me. I might as well have been a beggar. I might as well have been a dwarf or a monster. Time was when I was thought entitled to respect. But now, debauched by this Frenchified rascal, they call me rude, surly, a tyrant. It is true that I cannot talk in finical phrases, flatter people with hypocritical praise, or suppress the real feelings of my mind. The scoundrel knows his pitiful advantages, and insults me upon them without ceasing. He is my rival and my persecutor, and at last, as if all this were not enough, he has found means to spread the pestilence in my own family. You, whom we took up out of charity, the chance-born brat of a stolen marriage, you must turn upon your benefactor and wound me in the point that, of all others, I could least bear. If I were your enemy, should not I have reason? Could I ever inflict upon you such injuries as you have made me suffer? And who are you? The lives of fifty such cannot atone for an hour of my uneasiness. If you were to linger for twenty years upon the rack, you would never feel what I have felt. But I am your friend. I see which way you are going, and I am determined to save you from this thief, this hypocritical destroyer of us all. Every moment that the mischief is left to itself, it does but make bad worse, and I am determined to save you out of hand." The angry expostulations of Mr. Tyrrell suggested new ideas to the tender mind of Miss Melville. He had never confessed the emotions of his soul so explicitly before, but the tempest of his thoughts suffered him to be no longer master of himself. She saw with astonishment that he was the irreconcilable foe of Mr. Falkland, whom she had fondly imagined it was the same thing to know and admire and that he harboured a deep and rooted resentment against herself. She recoiled, without well knowing why, before the ferocious passions of her kinsman, and was convinced that she had nothing to hope from his implacable temper. But her alarm was the prelude of firmness, and not of cowardice. "'No, sir,' replied she, "'indeed I will not be driven any way that you happen to like. I have been used to obey you.' and in all that is reasonable I will obey you still. But you urge me too far. What do you tell me of Mr. Falkland? Have I ever done anything to deserve your unkind suspicions? I am innocent, and will continue innocent. Mr. Grimes is well enough, and will no doubt find women that like him. But he is not fit for me, and torture shall not force me to be his wife." Mr. Tyrrell was not a little astonished at the spirit which Emily displayed upon this occasion. He had calculated too securely upon the general mildness and suavity of her disposition. He now endeavoured to qualify the harshness of his former sentiment. "'God damn my soul! And so you can scold, can you? You expect everybody to turn out of his way and fetch and carry just as you please? I could find in my heart—' but you know my mind. I insist upon it that you let Grimes court you, and that you lay aside your sulks, and give him a fair hearing. Will you do that? If, then, you persist in your willfulness, why, there, I suppose, is an end of the matter. Do not think that anybody is going to marry you, whether you will or no. You are no such mighty prize, I assure you. 
If you knew your own interest, you would be glad to take the young fellow while he is willing. Miss Melville rejoiced in the prospect which the last words of her kinsman afforded her, of a termination at no great distance to her present persecutions. Mrs. Jakeman, to whom she communicated them, congratulated Emily on the returning moderation and good sense of the squire, and herself on her prudence in having urged the young lady to this happy expostulation. But their mutual felicitations lasted not long. Mr. Tyrrell informed Mrs. Jakeman of the necessity in which he found himself of sending her to a distance, upon a business which would not fail to detain her several weeks, and though the errand by no means wore an artificial or ambiguous face, the two friends drew a melancholy presage from this ill-timed separation. Mrs. Jakeman, in the meantime, exhorted her ward to persevere, reminded her of the compunction which had already been manifested by her kinsman, and encouraged her to hope everything from her courage and good temper. Emily, on her part, though grieved at the absence of her protector and counsellor at so interesting a crisis, was unable to suspect Mr. Tyrrell of such a degree, either of malice or duplicity, as could afford ground for serious alarm. She congratulated herself upon her delivery from so alarming a persecution, and drew a prognostic of future success from this happy termination of the first serious affair of her life. She exchanged a state of fortitude and alarm for her former pleasing dreams respecting Mr. Falkland. These she bore without impatience. She was even taught, by the uncertainty of the event, to desire to prolong, rather than abridge, a situation which might be delusive, but which was not without its pleasures. End of chapter 7 of Volume the First